Welcome to The Buzz, the podcast of the Jazz Journalists Association. I'm Howard Mandel, here to introduce a panel discussion held at the JJA's Book Bash, a party of writers, readers, and publishers, held March 26, 2023, on our virtual reality site, the JJA Bash House. Bob Blumenthal, JJA board member, moderated this panel with Richard Colada, author of Holy Ghost, The Life and Death of Free Jazz Pioneer Albert Ayler, editors of The Rutledge Companion to Jazz and Gender, Monica Herzig and James Redden, and Michael Wolfe, pianist and author of On That Note, a memoir of jazz, ticks, and survival. The first voice you'll hear is Richard Collada, speaking of how he came to write about Albert Ayler and his brother Donald. Well, the challenge was actually convincing myself to do it because I wound up going to a library sale in Middleburg Heights, and I, I it's a habit of mine. I bought a book, book, copy of Leonard Feather's book uh, about the jazz in the 70s. And I wound up, I found, I had a show on WCSB late night radio, um, and I invited, it had Donnie's phone number in it, Don Eiler's phone, I mean, phone number, and I called him up. He was floored, someone still remembered him. And at that time, I was in my final year of law school, and I had all other plans, but he kept telling me I should write it. But it was really by default, because at that time, the Peter Nicholas Wilson book was eminently due to come out in English. Well, it took 20-some years. But I said, I'm not going to compete about that. I couldn't see competing with Jeff Schwartz's um, free website. But I did it to make him happy. But the more I dealt into it, I was so fascinated by it. And I find out, well, there were things, as much as I respect Wilson's analyses of things that I never challenged in my own book, it's some of the times where he took people at their word when he was interviewing them. And I always learned as a lawyer, double check stuff that people tell you, but it isn't necessarily true. On the other hand, to convince people to be interviewed was fun too, because I would I would crip from the Smithsonian magazine and say, your story is America's story. And that's the one thing, like I still remember Carrie Roundtree baking cookies for me when I got in, when I interviewed her. But it is such a challenge because to find people. And I was stuck at the time. My father was disabled. I couldn't leave Cleveland. But it's one thing that I subconsciously did. And I it was brought up by one of the reviewers about the contrasting opinions the reviews were was either charlatan or was he a visionary that is what intrigued me the most and i treated it subconsciously again as a court case and i had the different reviewers some even on the same record was he did this or was he that and therefore and that's why it's important to put the reviewers backgrounds in the picture like, for example, George Hofer, and Bob, you mentioned in one of the reviews, but George Hofer was a very big um, thing in the Dixieland field. Chris Albertson wrote the biography of uh, Bessie Smith, but he thought Eiler was a charlatan. George Hofer wrestled with him. Then you have the people who had personal agendas, such as Ted Jones or Baraka. They both um, were anti-white, especially... Um, Ted Jones, the way he made some anti-Semitic cracks about uh, Michelle Samson. So everyone has their agenda, like it or not. But the goal was to present it out there as a court case, is to by the reviewers as the expert witnesses. And then you let the readers make up their minds. Okay. That's what it worked. Eiler was also 
Then it told a few fibs about his life. Then he joined the army to learn more about music when it was the beat child support tape. And it's the trick is, it's like Oliver Cromwell would have said, um, warts and all. And I know Isla's daughter was not amused about what I wrote about her uncle, about the final chapter, the court case he was involved in. But on the other hand, again, it resurrected his reputation as a musician, despite his... Um, criminal charge, and he was very far gone. I visited him in the jail. I was one of the, about the only visitor he ever had when he was in the slammer, and he was very, um, I mean, say he liked the food better than he did at the hospital, which shows, but he was a friend of mine, and I don't know, I could say, some people would say I betrayed him, but no, I resurrected his reputation by telling the truth. And um, I, I hate to cut you off, but I want to make sure we we have time for the other folks here. Oh, I'm done, probably. Okay, well, we'll get back to you. Let me let me ask James and Monica, the, the introduction to your volume talks about how it was conceived at a conference and how you then solicited input. And I, I'm always fascinated by collaborative efforts um, and how the three editors came together, how the soliciting process worked, and how you finally found a home for this. Um, well, I guess I will speak to that. Um, so, um, so yeah, this, uh, this came out of a uh, paper that I presented at the Documenting Jazz Conference in Dublin, uh, Dublin, Ireland, back in 2019. And um, I was actually approached by an editor from Rutledge because they were interested in a volume of something like this. They weren't quite sure what it was going to be, but they knew that they wanted something that was going to explore the topic of gender and jazz. Um, so after after that conference, um, I came back and I, the first thing I was going with, I can't write a book on jazz and gender, um, myself being a middle-aged <laughs> white guy. So, um, and, uh, and, and I, because there's too many intersections between gender and race and culture and, and everything. So I had to think about what, what this was going to kind of be. And then I reached out to Monica, um, who we had actually never met <laughs> prior to this. Um, and, um, I knew her research and, um, and her work, um, both as a jazz pianist and as an academic and scholar, and we did uh, a good amount of brainstorming, and then uh, uh, she knew Michael Carr, and so we reached out to him um, because we wanted to have um, we we wanted to have representation across uh, uh, across continents, um, basically, and we wanted to uh, approach this with a global view of of jazz and gender. Um, so then we started. Um, we, we, we basically wrote our preface um, to kind of help us uh, kind of all be in the same on the same page of where we were headed and, and defining what this volume was going to be. Um, and then we started reaching out to scholars, across, not just across the country, but across five continents um, to because uh, gender, the, the concept of gender and how it uh, how it plays into things is also you know, a representation of culture. So we. Um, we wanted to make sure that we were getting a lot of different points of view, especially since there's 68 different gender identities that are currently um, understood and 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 uh, and you know and I used as used for personal identification. So, um, 
It was, a, it was a very complex process. Uh, we actually never met in person. <laughs> um, so it was a lot of email and zoom calls, but it's been, it was a really fun journey, uh, putting that to putting this volume together. Um, and I think it's, there's been a lot of very interesting ideas that have come for, forward from it. We, I mean, we did meet in person, just not all three at the same time. Right. But, <laughs> but you also asked about the collaboration, and I have to say, it, it's working in teams is a really important thing to to keep you on track and to put all your info together. Having a team is then bigger than a whole. You know, I did books by myself before. And it's very easy to go into your own room and, and do your thing. But that way, you keep on track and having those different networks. And one fun thing that came out of it, I actually moved to Vienna where Michael was and ta-da. <laughs> so things happen. <laughs> let me let me uh, ask Michael Wolf a question now. Because um, Michael wrote an autobiography. And it's a different process than writing about, you know, the late greats. Um, and and I, I wonder if you could talk about your process and specifically, uh, had you kept diaries? Was this all from memory? Did you fact check with friends and associates? What was the process? No, I never kept a diary. By the way, Monica, you in, you're in Vienna now. I'll be playing there April 1st, Poor Game Best. Well, on April 1st, I'll be in Florida, but okay, I'll well. be at Poor Game Best in July. But have fun. It's a great club. Anyway, uh, no, you know what? I had never written a book. I'd never written much. I definitely didn't keep diaries. I did have some, you know, week at a glance things that you kept on before. There was really computer or iPhone, but truthfully, I didn't really look at them. What happened was, this is about 10 years ago. My father-in-law is a really interesting guy, and he had been undersecretary general of the UN. And, you know, so he wrote a book. And I was really impressed. And he said, well, you're good at telling stories. You should try writing a book. And so at first, I wrote about 100 pages of a how-to book of being a musician because I'd had so many different kinds of experiences, you know, how to be a you know, jazz pianist, how to be an accompanist, how to be a leader, how to be a conductor, how to write film scores. And sort of like Holden Caulfield, you know, and Catcher in the Rye when he took speech class and everybody, when they would get off the uh, – the subject, people would yell at them, digression, digression. And Holden said, I like digressions. And when I read my book, I liked the digressions off of what I was teaching. So that's the way I started. And, you know, the way I did it was I sat at the computer every day, not for hours and hours, maybe an hour. And I just started writing things as they came to me. And I didn't have to, it wasn't like I had to really remember them. I found that as I wrote, I was in that space because it's my life, you know. And as I, I had a, a lot of friends that are writers, Ann Hood is a writer. This guy Da Chin was a was a great. Uh, he wrote a lot of memoirs, so he just said, "Hey, it's your memory, man. You can do what you want." So, but the process was really long. And then in the midst of it, I got very sick for four years with cancer, and I had to stop it. And so then I came out of that, and it gave me even more of an impetus to really write my story. So. I didn't write anything chronologically. I wrote like, oh, let me go write about Cannonball. You know, people I play with, let me write about Sonny Rollins, Nancy Wilson, uh, mentors who I had, you know, uh, before I knew the word mentor, you know, like Bill Evans, Count Basie, things like that. And then, uh, 
you know, I grew up in the South. So I wrote about being a white person and a Jewish person in the South in the 50s and the racism I experienced. And then being, I've always been the only white guy in all these black bands. And, you know, I just wanted to deal with whatever came up. And then we moved to Berkeley in the 60s, Berkeley, California. So really things just started happening as I would write. And that was how it came together. And then I, I found an amazing editor that helped me organize everything. And that was key. And, you know, I've, I'm a big reader. So every time you read a book, it says, I want to thank my editor. Editor, I go, why are they thanking their editor? You know, what's the big deal? You know, look up a couple spellings. And then I realized, wow. And if you look on the right, at least when I did it on the right of my, right of my manuscript, everything was like tons and tons of ideas to make me sound like a, you know, a better writer. But I, I did spend a lot of time trying to make this book sound more or less the way I speak. So I didn't want it to be like the New Yorker. I didn't want it to be like things I've read. I wanted to be like a jazz musician that I am, you know? So that was my process. No, editors are important. Whenever I get in fights with them, I always tell them nobody ever reads something and says, what lousy editing. Yeah. Oh, they better do well by me. Um, but uh, let me let me see if we have time for one more question for everybody. This is a general question, but particularly in, in the case of Richard's book about Eiler, uh, often mm-hmm. when we're writing about jazz, there's a tension between um, preaching to the choir and writing in a way that'll draw more people in. And I would think with a musician like Eiler, if one approached it that way, this would be a particular challenge. I wonder if, if you ever had to, deal with this notion about how much do I have to assume that only people who are into Albert Eiler are going to read this book and or how much am I going to make an effort to draw more people under the tent? Well, my editor, who I'm grateful to draw the people in, my original book was what I used to call the Urtext. It read like a doctoral dissertation. He, um, I forgot the editor's name, although I credited him at the end. He made it sound like a great book, and it does draw people in. And I realized that's the most important thing. Um, your text thing fell by the wayside. I mean, he pointed out things to me that um, were obvious, but I never wrote it. That every time Eiler was up the crick financially or emotionally, he gets a call from Europe. And it was right there in the book, but I never realized it. On the other hand, there were certain things I had to um, fight to keep in. But there were things that I kept out, like what was the name of Eiler's pet cat? That got put out. But on the other hand, there were things that I felt were important to be kept in. And they, Jawbone, let me put in everything I wanted to keep. Um, and I realized, but I realized, also realized certain things no one cared about. And... Um, so if the editor, I consider it very, very important. He brought out things, and the, um, then I had a bunch of uh, ghost readers who caught things that I did not even know about. Like, you do not say Ohio State University. You have to say the Ohio State University. I still have some regrets for things I left out by accident because um, 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 Eiler's son his grandchildren play trumpet and saxophone. I would have loved to have put it in, but I lost contact with him until um, um, I sent him the copy of the book. And he's shown up with me at some book signings. So there are things I regret leaving out because, and I always was hunting, but I'm grateful to the editor because they put it to make it readable. And it's for people who don't like jazz, all of a sudden they're reading about Eiler. And it be, it's, he's, my 
contention is he's going to become, I mean, not considered a charlatan, but a visionary. And that's what um, I'm grateful to the editor for. Okay. Um, um, let me let me direct the next question to James and Monica. Um, a friend of mine last summer or fall, uh, sometime late summer, early fall, wrote to me and said, how come all the female jazz artists are vocalists? And I said, well, is this true? And I looked at the Downbeat Critics Bowl and the Monterey Jazz Festival um, program and was pleasantly surprised to see how well-represented female instrumentalists were, uh, both in what might be considered non-traditional categories, uh, winners like Melissa Aldana, um, Terry Lynn Carrington, Mary Halverson, uh, Chris Davis and piano, which I guess isn't considered non-traditional for female musicians, but uh, to win the award would be. And um, I wonder, is this a sign that things are changing or was it an aberration? And, and how do we explain it? I think there's definitely an effort and, and, and you see that in the last year. Um, the German Jazz Union just put a very recent study out that was conducted 2022 to get the numbers, see, see if we're changing. And it was it, it was um, fascinating. So, yes, you know, on the top, we always have the one that are exceptional and that get uh, definitely more limelight now. The, the whole issue, what I keep explaining people is that if we look at the whole landscape, you know, now festivals, we have the groups, but it's usually, you know, one woman leading and still the, all the other band members are male most of the time. So, yes, we see a change, but it's very slow. So we can't just start skipping, skipping over it. In the study, we did have the numbers. Um, and what was really clear is that the pay gap is real, that... Um, most reported getting lesser pay, that also even those who were in reported teaching, but on a lower level, not in the college setting. In the college setting, it's still absolute terrible picture. So the teaching part and then, um, you know, the family aspect, we haven't solved that that either yet. So it's looking good. <laughs> and, and the numbers, and we're paying attention now. So Let's get that attention to to really get a, a half and half or equal picture. It's it's the middle ground that's that's the issue where um, we do um, you know where if we have the choice and the stare the, there's still the stereotyping going on and I can still tell you I go on stage and and people go oh that sounded really good I didn't expect that you look more like a school teacher what did you expect done by the looks <laughs> so looking good but let's not not lean back yet and I will also jump in here and just say that, like one interesting fact Monica's the instrumentalist and I'm the vocalist <laughs> true you're in the minority in the vocal part <laughs> all right well let me go back to Michael now Michael Wolf um, writing an autobiography, I wonder uh, if there are well, a couple of things. One is a question of balance. The book is titled A Memoir of Jazz, mm -hmm. dot, dot, dot. Mm -hmm. Yet one of the things that I found to be the most valuable was how it reveals as a professional musician, you can't just always say, well, I'm a jazz musician. That's all I'm going to do. You end up mm -hmm. in other situations. 
Um, so I wondered if, if there was an issue of balance and how much jazz to put in and how much of your other professional experience. And also as an autobiographer, if you ever were brought up short and said, well, I, I don't want to really discuss this or that. I'm not going to ask you to reveal your secrets. But was that an issue as you were writing? That was definitely an issue. I mean, in terms of the balance of playing jazz and playing other gigs, I mean, yeah, I, I mean, jazz was something is what I really love. But I played so many gigs. Truthfully, I have to read through it again and see what I put in. I don't think I put in too much. I talked about recording in New Orleans, a lot of R&B stuff and, you know, playing in funk bands and stuff. But jazz was really what I was into. But, you know, I had to. I had to earn a living. So, uh, you know, my father grew up in the, in the depression in the United States. And he said, if you're not breaking the law or digging ditches, you're doing pretty well. So you, if you could get a job playing music, he thought it was pretty honorable. And I, I tried to keep that in mind, you know, uh, you know, you can get snooty about it. And as I've gotten older, I've gotten maybe a little snootier, but you know, doing like the Arsenio Hall show and that band leading gig, it changed my life and it was the best thing I ever did. And I was in my late thirties at that point. And and you had at least one woman in the band, right? Yeah, yeah. I had uh, Star Perotti playing keyboards in the band. You know, when I started out in the seventies, I mean, there was Vi Red, the sax player, and there were a few women musicians. And there, when I was in Thad Jones' band, Thad Mel in seventy six, there was one woman trombone player, Lolly uh, Blumenfeld. That was it. You know, I mean, there really weren't a lot of women. So. Now I play with, you know, Billy Nyswanger and Camille Thurman and, you know, whoever, man. You know, of course, Terry Lynn was in the band, too, by the way, right. uh, of our senior hall show. So, yeah, I mean, uh, that uh, I'm sure with the numbers like uh, Monica and I met Monica, of course, a long time ago at IAJ. I don't know if she remembers. But anyway, uh, yeah, uh, that's improving. Now, as far as what I didn't put in. As, as I was writing the book, the whole Me Too thing came out. So I definitely didn't mention what it was really like on the road in the 70s and 80s because it was really a whole other world in terms of men and women and you know relationships. But you do allude to it in the book. Yeah, well, I allude to it a little bit, but I left out. I had some really good stories <laughs> with some famous women, you know, and some funny stories. And, you know, I just left it all out. I just thought, man, I, that's not what I'm about. And, you know wasn't so important to me but that was definitely a part of my life i mean i've talking to any almost any musician a male musician i would say you know why did you really get into it they all say to me women you know because we were all not we were all shy we were you know we were into music none of us were really gregarious and able to i wasn't you know able to go out now and i remember when i was about 12 or 13 i was playing the piano at somebody's house and this little girl sat next to me in the piano and I thought, I'm going to practice. I am going to practice and get so good. And that was my inspiration. That's the truth. But I didn't, I didn't dig into that, you know, because okay. obviously the music was the important thing. But yeah, so I mean, I edited a lot of stuff out, you know. I had a lot of I really, in the middle of the pandemic, when I was just getting this book put together, I read this book, Class, by uh, Wilkerson. I've got her first name. It was all about the class system in the United States. Caste, it was caste, sorry. And it was how that the racial system in the United States is really like the caste system in India. And I thought I really understood, having always played with all these black musicians and been on the road, 
for when I saw read that book and I looked back at my life and my super racist family and you know and they were Jewish, but you know I just said I got to deal with this and I wanted to deal with it and I for myself to really talk about the United States and and for everybody to see it. So I and talk about research. I called a lot of my black musician friends, people I'd known maybe since my. 20s. I don't know if you know the guitarist Henry Johnson, just very various people. You know, I talked on the phone with Sonny Rollins every month and I talked to him about it. And uh, everyone, they were all, you know, Sonny said, well, you know, you were one of the greatest musicians I ever played with, man. And that's all, that's all small people stuff. We don't think about that. But when I talked to some of my other black friends, uh, one guy said a really great thing. He said, you know, at that time, jazz was the democracy. And I think he meant meritocracy, but democracy we wish the united states had been you know so my feeling was i was accepted by all the black players because i could really play and i played in that style you know there are different styles in jazz and it really is a separation of white players and black players and not that we can't all play together and it all works together but i came up growing up in mississippi and new orleans and my father loved the blues and i grew up listening to you know, B.B. King and Muddy Waters and Count Basie. And, you know, so I came up a certain way. So my rhythmic feel really fit in with those bands. Okay. Listen, uh, I, I could ask questions for another hour, but we've got all kinds of other activity. Um, it's great uh, to converse with two pianists whose music I've enjoyed. James, I'm going to have to look you up online to hear some of your vocals. I'm not familiar with them. And I thank everybody for attending. It's been well, great. Thank I want to just thank you for nominating my book. I came out of the blue, and I'm thrilled. And all of you. You've been listening to The Buzz, the podcast of the Jazz Journalists Association. Bob Blumenthal moderated a panel of authors of books nominated for 2023 JJA Jazz Awards. They were Richard Collada, author of Holy Ghost, The Life and Death of Free Jazz Pioneer Albert Ayler, Editors Monica Herzig and James Redden of the Rutledge Companion to Jazz and Gender, and Michael Wolf, author of On That Note, a memoir of jazz, ticks, and survival. The panel was held March 26, 2023, at the JJA's online virtual reality site, JJA Bash House. I'm Howard Mandel, president of the Jazz Journalists Association. To learn more about us, go to jjanews.org. The Buzz drops new episodes regularly, available on all major platforms. This edition was edited by Wiz Petta, with John Michael's composition Big Vic as our theme music. Check back for more of The Buzz. <laughs>